is Ed Mazur, Chairman Emeritus of the City Club of Chicago. Our speaker today was United States Congressman Michael Quigley of the 5th District in the state of Illinois. Quigley was first elected to Congress in 2009. He uh, replaced a gentleman named Rahm Emanuel. We've all heard of him before. Prior to serving in Congress, he was a Cook County Commissioner. Congressman Michael Quigley currently is a member of the Intelligence Committee and the Appropriations Committee. He's a graduate of Roosevelt University, Loyola Law School, and holds a master's from the University of Chicago. He talked about two things, bipartisanship and the Ukrainian situation. With regard to bipartisanship, Congressman Quigley said, no policy matters if it doesn't work at the local level. The world and the United States is in the state that it is in right now because the center has shrunk. We need dance partners to work with, and right now there seems to be an absence of bipartisanship and even civility in Washington, D.C. Then he focused on the Ukrainian situation, and he pulled no punches. Congressman Quigley said, we are at war. We cannot let a sovereign democratic nation be wiped out. He said, Putin has already declared war on the United States, although many of us refuse to recognize that. We are only a miscalculation away, Congressman Quigley said, from NATO being struck and attacked. He said the Ukraine has earned the right to be defended as if it is a member of NATO. Putin's call, he said, is to restore the entire Soviet Union. He concluded by saying we need to create our own red lines and not worry about Putin's red lines. The City Club of Chicago. Thank you. Our congressman today is Mike Quigley, um, who was a former Cook County commissioner, but elected to Congress in 2009 to represent Illinois' 5th District. I think we have some people from 44th Order, don't we? Are they here? I'm telling you, I can't see people, so. Um, and he has more than 30 years of service into this game, so he's been doing this for a little while. The congressman uh, serves on the House Committee Appropriations, where he's chair of the Subcommittee on Financial Services and General Government. He also serves on the Influential House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, where he oversees intelligence community and works to ensure the protection of both the U.S. and foreign adversaries, and as we are seeing in Ukraine right now, other nations from threats from their own democratic institutions. Congress. Quigley is co-chair of the Congressional Ukraine Congress, where he works to support Ukrainian-American relationships and advises the administration on best practices in protecting Ukrainian sovereignty. Uh, the Illinois 5th District is home to a very thriving Ukrainian-American community. Do we have any folks from 5th District from Ukraine here? There's somebody over there. Thank you for being here today. Um, he has built a strong bond with this community and is heavily involved in Chicago. I could go on, but there's so much to talk about with Congressman. I think we, you want to hear less of me and probably more of him as he comes to talk to us about Ukraine. Congressman, we welcome you and thank you for being here. Well, thanks, Jackie. Hello, my friends. It really is good to see people in person, right? That two and a half years kind of sucked. Um, and, and I know we're all zoomed out. I swear I was going to prank people when I saw them in person because you're so used to. Mike, you're muted. 
it reminds me, getting back and talking to my constituents, <clears throat> that human contact matters so much, you don't mind sometimes when it's negative. Uh, there's a senior building I, I go to routinely, and there was a woman there. Every time she would start talking, she'd end up yelling at me. <laughs> so one time I was there, and uh, she wasn't there, and I said, oh, is she all right? And they go, oh, Helen. She's just taking her sister to the doctor. She's going to be so sorry she missed you. I go, really? She goes, she loves yelling at you. <laughs> I am more convinced than ever that there's real truth to that. I believe that there are people who vote for me who disagree with most of what I do just because they know they can actually meet me on the street sometimes and tell me what an idiot I am. That's okay. I don't think I'm an idiot because I went to Roosevelt University. Hey. <laughs> Loyola Law School. <laughs> and I want someone to shame the University of Chicago because <clears throat> I, I got a master's there and I'm waiting for them to support City Club and have a table here. So <laughs> anybody who wants to take on that assignment, fine with me. Uh, first, I, I know we recognize the electeds, but you know that one of the reasons it's good to be home is you can't get good as good a food in D.C. It's getting there, but you can't get Ann Sather cinnamon rolls, can you? <laughs> and you look, I know there's a lot of reasons we should be down. Uh, for me, over the last weekend, Chicago took a big hit. We lost Dinkles Bakery. But we still have Tom. We still have Superdog. We still have some of our great friends eating with our hosts today. Uh, so I miss that as well. It's good to be with you. It'd be nice if it wasn't under such extraordinary, difficult circumstances, seemingly, you know, one crisis following another. But I, I do want to recognize my amazing local staff here. I see Isabella and Charlie and Mark. Hey. I tell folks, I started in this business, as our friend Mr. Houlihan will say, working for Bernie Hansen. And I worked there and taught John Borovica uh, how to follow in those footsteps. But here's the beauty of that. What Chicago aldermen know is what I'd like to think I haven't forgotten. No policy matters if it doesn't work at the street level on the block level, on one-on-one -on -one level. So uh, I have an amazing district office that focuses on that. And here's a tip. Look at your passports. We have a lot of calls from folks who, honest to God, went to the airport, the staff will tell you, and if your passport expires within six months, you're not getting on that plane. So uh, my staff loves it when you call them. <laughs> And here's a tip. Wait till the last possible second. <laughs> so, because I imagine I'm in D.C. And I, and, and I call Erica Reardon and I go, this is a good friend and they, wanna, they need to be on the plane. Can they get an interview? I just hear their heads exploding in the district office. <laughs> Look at your passport. Uh, if it needs to be renewed, please, please do that. So no matter what I talk about, and we've talked about a lot of things at the City Club,
in the end, I, I learned from our good aldermen, state reps and state senators, Sarah is shining right now because the one of the big issues of the day is something she's been so so pronounced on uh, in the uh, press news for what the Supreme Court is doing and the concerns we have for what's what's next. So, and our DC staff, we have two folks here, Marshall and Victoria, largely responsible. For if there's any degree of incoherence that's involved, I, it's it's their fault. <laughs> no, actually, I taught at Loyola for uh, seven years, and it's just the way I do things, which they've learned with such joy, is I actually had to have a tangent cop, uh, a student in the front know front row who remembered which tangent I was on six six tangents before. So if that happens today, Phil, it's all on you, okay? <laughs> Let me do a public service ad before I talk about the topic of the day. <clears throat> it's a political story from this week. Uh, and it has nothing to do with the pre President Trump. Trump flexes and the center shrinks. Five takeaways from a key primary night. The world is, to a large extent, in the state it is in, because of that little remark in the middle, that little state, the center shrinks. Let me explain. Uh, I got sworn in on a special election. I took um, somebody named Rom's place, went on to seemingly lesser and smaller things, but the beauty of that is you get sworn in, and you go there, and the next day they have votes, Speaker of the House, after the first vote, brings you up, swears you in, and you look up and go, what the hell is H.R. 2374? And you're on your way. But former senator and congressman Mark Kirk came up to me. He says, you're going to get a lot of advice. He says, but the fact of the matter is, everything that gets done here gets done in the middle through some sort of compromise. And um, Bobby Rush added, he goes, yeah, but in D.C., compromise means doing it the other guy's way. This is a problem. This extraordinary polarization that we're witnessing makes these difficult challenges we're having uh, all the more uh, seemingly impossible. You know, the, for the record, we got the two reservoirs done in this region because the MWID did a great job lobbying me, and I reached a compromise with Speaker Boehner. And we passed a spending bill that had a lot of things in there that you would hate. But that was sort of the nature of compromise. And um, we're moving farther away. If I don't have dance partners to work with, the fact that in the next Congress I'm going to be the chairman knock on wood, or the ranking member of transportation, housing, urban development, right? I'm going to be the guy, the person who writes the funding for transportation and housing, urban development, which is what you need. I got the go-ahead from Kirk on this. Um, but if I don't have dance partners, this doesn't work. In the end... The Senate is forever a divided government, and we face that real possibility. So as we move forward, I think all of us have to decide our, between ourselves how we're going to make this work and how we're going to share those responsibilities and appreciate there's more that unites us and divides us. 
The bill that had the most bipartisan co-sponsors in Congress this term was the, a bill I sponsored, Act for ALS. Right, A good friend of ours uh, brought this to our attention, and um, it had... It passed, the Act for ALS. Game changer for all neurodegenerative diseases. A lot of people in this room, probably everyone's been touched in one manner or another by this issue. But it's, it's such an extraordinary issue. And people say, oh, you need to work across the aisle. That was actually a bill where there was no aisle, right? There was incredible unison to work against a real difficult challenge and get something like that passed. Plus, we also passed the largest infrastructure bill in the history of the United States. So it's possible, folks. We can get these things done. Uh, it's just going to take all of us working organically, I think, from the ground up to recognize that. But let's talk um, about Ukraine. On the day of the invasion, I was on a local news station, and uh, I was talking about what was likely to happen. And they said, we just did a flash poll, and it said that our viewers don't want anything to do with this. It has nothing to do with the United States, and we should stay out of it. And I was like, good luck with all that. Because I know Americans have that in their history, and it's somehow embedded to a degree, right? We've got these two big oceans that protect us, protect us right? And the sense that isolationism would somehow work. Um, so I wanted to start by quoting from the last FDR inaugural, putting that perspective before we talk about Ukraine. One of the shortest inaugurals in American history, a reminder that um, history is repeating itself and some of the very same issues that we're witnessing and the tragedy that we are seeing in Ukraine it was uh, brought before us before. This was in the middle of the Second World War, just before his death. He wrote, we Americans of today, together with our allies, are passing through a period of supreme test. It is a test of our courage, our resolve, our wisdom, our essential democracy. We have learned that we cannot live alone at peace, that our own well-being is dependent on the well-being of other nations far away. We have learned the simple truth that Emerson said, that the only way to have a friend is to be one. We can have no lasting peace if we approach it with suspicion, mistrust, or fear. Speaker Pelosi just came back from Ukraine, and she said, whatever you need to get to ultimate victory. That is a long way from the day of the first, first day of the invasion, Right? The Ukrainians were going to lose in three days, four days. Do you remember this? We were funding an insurgency. Apparently, the people advising us have not met the Ukrainians we know here in Chicago. <laughs> they, weren't in the, they weren't in Kiev right after the Maidan to see people digging up bricks from cobblestone walkways to fight back for the freedoms they didn't and those Ukrainians who voted again and again for their independence and their freedom and now are fighting and the, my colleagues in the RADA there were members of the RADA 
who are fighting on the very front lines against the Russians. So as many as you know, I recently led a delegation uh, to Slovakia, Romania, and Poland. And um, it's, uh, it's interesting because uh, I've been to Germany. I visited our troops there. I've been to Poland um, recent, in the past, talking with our troops. And then I was with the 82nd Airborne in Jejuv. I've learned to pronounce that almost in Poland to watch you know, purpose of my leading the delegation of four of the members of Intel was to see how the humanitarian aid was working, the military assistance was going through, and the migration of refugees was taking place. And uh, I had lunch and dinner with the 82nd Airborne. You just appreciate this in our memories of what we're comparing with 1939 through 1945. They said compared to being in Germany, they are welcomed as saviors in Poland. They come out of the street and the Poles love them. And that was my overwhelming response from this trip. An incredible sense of gratitude to the United States of America that harkens back to our relatives, right, who gave their last full measure of devotion to beat back the very threat that we face today just extraordinary to talk to them. There were also takeaways. They want stricter sanctions, particularly on banks and oil, any more uh, military and financial aid. They want us to freeze their assets to help pay for the rebuild. They want us to unlock the ports. Again, for those who think this doesn't affect anybody else in the world, there's going to be a worldwide food shortage because of this. And they want us to declare them a state sponsor of terrorism. All things uh, that we should do. So I agree with the speaker. I'm glad my country is catching up with the reality of the situation. But I really have two thoughts at the start. We are at war. We may not understand that and fully appreciate yet, but we are at war. And second, for those who remember Frank Capra from Second World War, he directed and produced Why We Fight. If you watch that again today, that documentary series, it was meant for our troops. But FDR, once he saw it, said, no, I want every American to watch that series. That same notion that we can't let a sovereign democratic nation be wiped off the face of the earth uh, was part of that. So we're going to we'll talk about those two points first. First of all, why are we at war? Because we're supplying arms at an extraordinary historic historical rate. Second, Vladimir Putin has already declared war on us, and he's already attacked us previously, not just once, 2016, 2018, 2020 elections. Second, the cyber attacks that have taken place against this country were either him directly involved or being in, uh, uh, allowing them to take place out of his country. Solar winds, the largest hack on our country, um, the ransomware that happened, including Colonial Pipeline, uh, are all things that he's already done. Uh, and Russia has been threatening the supply lines, but uh, recently they have actually begun to attack them. For those of you who remember the great book by Barbara Tuckman, The Guns of August, we are a miscalculation away from NATO being struck. And I, as an aside, I have a problem with us saying 
we're going to help Ukraine, but we're not going to do, we're not going to go beyond a certain point, right? But if it's NATO, we're going to fight for every inch of NATO. Okay, hasn't Ukraine earned the right to be defended in the same manner? Isn't their fight exactly why NATO was formed? And haven't they shown with that resolve the spirit and the purpose of a unified front of protecting against this sort of totalitarian attack? Putin has put his forces on higher alert. Um, and there hasn't been a notion yet that they have gone beyond that. But as General Barrier said, uh, we have to take Putin at his word. He also shelled a nuclear power plant and refused to let the Ukrainians put the fire out. We're all aware of what took place at Chernobyl and the devastation that took place for a lifetime in that area. That was a one-unit nuclear power plant. The attack, the indiscriminate shelling, a six-unit nuclear power plant. The first time Zelensky spoke to us um, via video Zoom to the members of the House, you know, that was what he pointed out. He could have taken out Europe. So the threat goes well beyond the, these borders. So why do we fight? It's a sovereign democratic nation. That should matter to us because of what that fight represents. Because of the Budapest Memorandum. Let's not forget we promised this a long time ago. In the fall of the Soviet Union, the third highest country with nuclear arms was Ukraine. And they agreed to give those weapons up. There's many a dictator out there who wants these weapons because they want to use them in a sense of defense. Ukraine never had that option because they opted for peace with the promise from Great Britain, the United States, and ironically Russia, that we would defend their territorial integrity. That has to matter to something. It has to be our commitment, must be our bind, and we must be uh, protective of them. Second, Fiona Hill wrote an excellent article uh, she was an advisor in SC, brilliant woman, testified in the Ukraine investigation. She talked about the very real specter, for those of you as old as I am, to beginning to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962. Putin is threatening to put hypersonic missiles in Cuba and Central America. It's, it's, at some point, Putin turns that turret toward us, and we have to recognize that as a very real fear. So we've also seen the very real brutality that's taken place here. Um, and I, I do want to talk about uh, the genocide that's happening. But before I do that, look, if anyone imagines that Putin doesn't want to restore the entire Soviet Union, I'm telling you, the Poles, the Romanians, they are all convinced that it's going to happen. The Poles are convinced that they are next. But the, I would bet it's probably the Moldovians, and that's coming soon. But why we fight, perhaps the most important reason, uh, the Russian retreat from Bukha in the north and along Kiev. Um, journalists reported bodies of civilians left in the street for weeks, mass graves dug in churchyards, evidence of torture of civilians, evidence of rape used as a weapon of war. They have evidence of cluster bombs, uh, vacuum bombs, uh, a maternity hospital blown up, a, a building with children written all over it, flattened. 
uh, obvious violations of international law being there in the first place. But you know, it's interesting. The, the last two former NATO Supreme Commanders have said the same thing, in essence. When are we going to stop worrying so much about Putin's red lines and start creating our own? At what measure does this mean you have to take a stance? There are risks involved. But for those of us going again back to the Second World War, what were our earliest memories of this as kids? Watching documentaries like The World at War and the horrified, sketchy black and white images of the Blitzkrieg and the Holocaust. And what were we always told, Santianos, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it never again? We are there. We are a test as a world and as a country. And it's for us to fulfill our responsibilities there. So uh, I heard people parse words on genocide. There's two elements to genocide, according to the United Nations, a mental element which is a proven intent on part of the perpetrators to physically destroy a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, and a physical element, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily harm, inflicting condition of life calculated to bring about the destruction of a group, imposing measures intended to prevent births, and forcibly transferring, which is taking place, right? They are moving Ukrainians somewhere between five and 600,000 into Russia. Reports claim that Ukrainians have had their passports confiscated, that children have their birth certificates altered to reflect a Russian nationality, and they've been summarily executed. So, what are we to do? I think the final point I'll make before I conclude is, as a student, I think a lot of us were taught that all wars are about trade, right? It's an old civics notion. With some material interest dramatically impacting how a war starts and moves forward. In this case, the material interest is oil. Let me tell you one of the most disturbing factoids about this that, again, my crack staff came up with. Since the war started, we have provided $4 billion in military aid under the Biden administration, right? Since the start of the war, NATO has supplied Ukraine with $1.2 billion in military assistance. Each day, the EU sends $850 million for gas and oil to Russia. They are fueling the war machine. In three days... We're giving, the EU is giving Putin more money than the, all of NATO has given Ukraine to defend itself. This further exposes a serious security risk from the global West. Our dependence on fossil fuels, particularly from dictatorial sources. You know the sources. Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, uh, other countries in the Middle East. This is the great security risk of our time. This changeover has to happen rapidly. Apparently, climate change wasn't enough to convince anyone of this. 
So hopefully this war will shine a line on this. Now, Secretary Austin said our efforts need to, to deal with this conflict need to happen at the speed of war. Put another way, we need to shift the EU's dependence on this away from Putin at a greater speed than war because we're financing in in the opposite direction. And the U.S. needs to play a role, a pretty pronounced role, as with our allies. Now, the good news is the EU announced this week they will phase out the import of Russian crude oil within six months and will stop the flow of refined oil by the end of the year. That's great news. But you understand that's going to still mean billions more flowing into the Russian economy while we're still trying to sanction them back to the Stone Age. So we're obviously working at cross-purposes here. Here in the United States, we have to get gas and oil companies to dramatically increase their production. They tell us that their primary concern is their shareholders. Okay, watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox for a couple hours and watch babies be pulled out of rubble and don't tell me that you have a greater responsibility someplace else in the world. So, we got a short-term way to do with this and a long-term way to do with this. But the oath end it. We need to enhance production pretty dramatically here. But long-term, to save our planet and to keep ourselves so much safer, um, we need to shift away from our dependence. So, someone asked me on... Um, the news the other day. Is Ukraine winning? I said, winning? Let's define our terms here, folks. 5.5 million refugees, a quarter of the population displaced, half of those displacements are kids, cities flattened, thousands dead, 500,000 taken to another country, war crimes and genocide. You know, and, you know, I don't think the Russians can win in the terms that they thought, certainly at the beginning, where this was going to be a four-day war, they were going to be greeted as liberators. You know, this in best with them was going to be a, a battle of insurgency. But on, I suppose now, if you were going to wager on this, it would be some sort of standoff where, the, you know, they hold territories, greater territories than they did in the East. And that simply can't be allowed to happen. So... I don't know that you can say that Ukraine, they're winning expectations, they're winning versus all the odds, but let's ask ourselves, what would victory look like? So, Russia gains absolutely nothing from this, particularly in new territory. Second, victory means holding those who have committed war crimes and those who have ordered them accountable, which will be extraordinarily difficult. Victory means seizing Russian assets all over the world and using them to rebuild Ukraine and make that country whole. Our victory should also mean that NATO and the United States and Ukraine are all stronger than they were before to prevent some some things like this from happening. Ukraine is deterring China from saying, hey, look at what they did. Let's act on Taiwan. But there's any light that comes from this? I might have seen it on this trip. You know, we've seen refugees 
potentially from Syria and other in Afghanistan. And we've seen the refugee camps. We've seen the tents. Uh, Poland has accepted 2.5 million refugees. When you're there in the, in the German train stations, they're greeting them. They're giving them baby strollers and they're taking them into their homes. Right? It's just extraordinary. But I'd like to think that victory means that we all start to look at this in a different light. And we aren't just concerned about Ukrainians because maybe they look more like me. And we're just as concerned about refugees from Afghanistan, from Ethiopia, from Yemen. The list goes on in the horrors of war. So I like to think finally that victory means that the spirit transcending this moment and this one place and influence our own shores. If we can remember who we are as a country and begin to open our doors to people from all walks of life, from all terrors of the world, may we do this together. Thank you very much. Now it's stuff the congressman. <laughs> Let I don't me guess the first question. What do you think the first question would be? <laughs> Keep me in suspense. Um, I, I understand that in the congressman's spare time, he teaches a course at uh, UFC on intelligence and security. Can I just come and like audit that class yeah. and just sit in? It's all about the guest speakers. <laughs> Uh, I want to give him a chance to get his water. Um, do we have any um, questions from over there? We got some coming. Some, some coming. The other day, I someone said we're going to pick people randomly. I said from the tips, and the tips only of the magic arrow. And I'm like, half the people knew what the reference was. <laughs> <laughs> I will say while Amanda's coming, Stella Black wanted to thank you for the work that you're doing with the Postal Service in your district. So to your constituent, we're constituent staff. So, oh, yeah, if you didn't have a chance to um, put your name in the um, bowl, Amanda's carrying it around. Too late. Too late. So if you just saw Lawrence uh, handing a question and it's on top, it is because he's one of my faves. So, um, Question from Lawrence Msaw, the, Fe the Civic Federation. <laughs> Thank you, Congressman Quigley, for being here and for your service. Is there anything you can, sh can share on Chicago's violence and policy and police changes? Challenges, sorry. Let me move out of your way. Okay. Well, look, let me just talk from the, the role I have right now. And that's, um, we have to be in lockstep with local governments to do everything we possibly can. Uh, I, I got an earmark passed last year that provided money for CPD to work with other law enforcement agencies, particularly the FBI, more effectively. I put in an earmark this year for 500 bulletproof vest, um, and we're working with CPD now on their other needs. We, I mean, Chicago needs helicopters. Then actual CPD helicopters that aren't costing a fortune to maintain and uh, can be worked toward that end. Um, and this joint task force dealing with uh, prosecutions is the absolute right thing to do. It's had some early victories. But the, one of the problems is there's really no law against trafficking. 
in the classical sense of how we understand it. Uh, Bobby Rush and, and Robin Kelly have a bill that addresses that on point. It needs to happen. Uh, I just passed a bill, signed into law. It's so rare you get to say that. <laughs> I just passed a law that uh, deals with Nick's denial notification. Most states, if somebody who shouldn't get a gun applies for a gun, nobody knows, right? The prosecutors were saying, we want to know this. Democrat and Republican, God bless. So from now on, they're going to find out about it. But there's a lot of reasonable measures that can uh, address this, uh, including uh, not just notification, but how guns are transferred and, um, um, you know, all points making sure we have background checks. This is uh, easy stuff. It's a lot harder to carjack without a gun. So the flow of illegal guns in Chicago and the crimes they commit is is disgusting. So uh, there's a lot more uh, we can do in D.C. Uh, it has to do with the flow of guns, the ability to get them, uh, giving law enforcement the resources they need, and then long-term addressing the root causes from the disparity and inequality. And, and, and again, the root causes of, problem, of crime we've got to be all in. And uh, obviously, this is a long time overdue. So short-term, long-term, D.C. can work very, very well. The answer's just at the Chicago level. Uh, it would probably take the equivalent of the time I just spoke about Ukraine. But uh, we're going to play our role in D.C. Oh, to my heart, we're probably in a race against time to get this done while we control the House. Um, just looking at the numbers. But uh, we're going to do what we can. Thanks. Thank you, Congressman. Paula McCabe from Bronner Group says, with Congress' recent appropriations to support the war in Ukraine, do you think this will further threaten President Biden's domestic agenda, the Build Back Better? I don't know that that is what threatens Build Back Better. Uh, Build Back Better should have happened months ago, I think right now. The, the single measure that address climate change and so many other issues that we face is in that bill. It, so branding or however people uh, vilify it, it was the right thing to do. So I'm thinking Build Back Better may pass as individual bills or individual bills thrown into other things. We're talking about this supplemental uh, that we hope to pass on Ukraine next week, um, attaching it to the COVID uh, supplemental that needs to happen at the same time. I'm going to guess that uh, anything we do with Build Back Better that addresses the issues you care about care about is going to happen in that vein. I don't think you're going to change the minds of uh, two of my colleagues on the other side. It's the but it's you know people say why are you always blaming the Senate because it's fun <laughs> <laughs> and it's the story I the old story I tell of. Sam Rayburn, Democrat from Texas, Speaker of the House, the young freshman comes up to him and says, sir, I'm here to serve with you to go after the enemy, the Republicans. And Speaker Rayburn said, young man, Republicans are not the enemy. There are colleagues across the aisle. We're going to work with them to get things done. The enemy, the enemy is the Senate. <laughs> I'm a believer. <laughs> Marie Donovan, are you hearing me? Oh, there she is over there in the corner. Um, from DePaul says, what will it take to provide significant debt relief to college students, most of whom are working adults now, trying to raise families and care for their own parents? That's a good question. Sure. 
Look, some of this is how we fund education. Um, but in terms of student loan debt that's already there, I know the president stated very clearly he wants relief in that debt. If you're asking me how that's going to play out, I believe we will get something done. But it's you know, editorials aside about how you agree or disagree with this. I believe we will get something done on debt relief for uh, students. I paid off my student loans just before my two daughters started college. Thank you very much. Uh, but I think it'll be based in how it's termed on uh, need, and there'll be some sliding scale perhaps, but uh, it's long overdue. And then once that debt's there, that I mean that, that doesn't, you know, it helps. But I think long term we have to figure out how we're going to help people get into college and encourage it, and trade schools, and all the other ways that people can advance themselves, um, and some of that's how we handle the education from the ground up. So it's a start. I feel like I've had a lunch hour history um, and and intelligence lesson, and I think probably everyone else does as no, well. No more questions. Yeah, we don't have a do you, is anybody else have one last question? Because if not, we're gonna we're, we're running close to time and I want to be true to that. Oh, there's one more. I hadn't put my hand in here yet, so now you know if you wanted to talk some more, you could. Can you hear me say something? Oh. Okay. Well, let's do with this one question. Is this one more question for uh, the elephant left about five minutes ago. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Someone from DePaul, we don't know who that was, says, what role does increased investment in renewable energy have in our current situation? Look, we're, it, Western Europe should have been doing this a long time ago, knowing what this dependence meant, and the world needs to address this. I, I'm leading another uh, Codell among my colleagues to a national park again this year, Yosemite, where we talk about climate change because everybody likes national parks. But, you know, the first one I did, I was at the headwaters of the Colorado talking about the difference in one to two degrees of temperature and what that meant for retention and water in the Colorado River. What happened this week? They're shutting down access post the dam because they need that hydropower, but they're shutting water off. I mean, it's all connected. Paul Simon said, your kids are going to fight over water, not oil. You can see how this is related and how those two are connected. But, you know, we're, we're way behind, but we need to accelerate as quickly as we possibly can, help our colleagues and our allies in Europe do the same thing. Um, in short term, we need to enhance production to take the power away from Putin. So why am I staying where I am? Okay. Uh, someone sort of implied that people don't necessarily want to take on this task, which sort of implies that it's maybe less favorable or, you, you, you know, you don't want to take it on. I mean, I appreciate that, you know, I was in the room for January 6th, appreciate that when I walk onto the house floor, uh, I have to go through a metal detector, not to protect myself from outsiders, but to protect myself from my colleagues. This is the definition of a toxic environment. <clears throat> so um, I would say there are challenges at the state 
local and national level that are all extraordinary. So it's a two-pronged decision if you want to do something new. That first one, are you willing to give up what you're currently doing? In the middle of a potential world war, serving on intel and appropriations, playing a big role in that, it's tougher tougher to walk away. And the fact that we may lose the house, simply says, oh, that's why you should go. It's all the more reason why you may want to do something. You know, it was my 10 years on the county board, people said, you're better in the minority, Mike, which my wife believes is some sort of personality problem. (laughs) (laughs) But I can't imagine a better place to be that you you have right now in the middle of these extraordinary challenges that we just touched on today. And again, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to be the highest ranking Democrat funding three of the issues you care about most. The transportation housing you get, but the UD is urban development. I've already told my colleagues when we do earmarks, UD is whatever the hell they think it is, Right. I'm not going to tell somebody who wants to build a fire station or a police station or a library that doesn't fit the requirements. You look at our earmarks and our earmark request, it spans the globe in Chicago of everything that we need to get done. So that's exciting. It's tough because I know the challenges that are out there and I love my city and I, I understand what's taking place. But in the end, it's a personal decision and it's almost a full-time job in, Cam, this could be tough, uh, contemplating this and talking to folks about this while you're working 60, 70 hours a week and all the other things. So it's not, a, oh, I don't want to take that on. It's it's tough to give up what I'm doing and try to do all those things. Because I'd like to think I could do almost as much there as I can. And I've got amazing friends in this room that I can work with toward that end. And God love them. Thank you all. God bless.